Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Paul, could you summarize what you what you did in the class? You know, Friedrich Nietzsche says, oh yeah, Christianity, that's Platonism for the masses. Is Nietzsche correct? At least in the received understanding, yeah, that he is correct. You know, we could have all kinds of discussion about what Plato really said, and oh, it's much more complicated than that. At some level, I think Friedrich Nietzsche is correct. There is a kind of emptying out of the world by Plato. That's what Nietzsche meant. There is a trading of all that's earthly and material and bodily for the heavenly. And he calls that nihilism. Yeah, I think that's right. We did this in the previous class with Augustine, that Augustine is going to begin to work with a interior-exterior notion. He's going to say, well, what matters is not that we actually do what Jesus said, but what is primary is our attitude. And then the action, the outward action, is secondary. Augustine is a Neoplatonist. He's following Plotinus, and there is an overtaking up of Platonism. In the work of Anselm, then he is overtly doing this. He is just doing a project in which he's incorporating, and that Greek philosophy into Christian theology, and that is where we get scholasticism. Scholasticism is the fusion of those two realms of thought. The philosophy in what we're doing here, my point with it would be, is that it's not, nothing strange is happening philosophically. That is, that philosophy is just an articulation of human thought. As we follow what is happening philosophically, and I don't mean to reduce it to this, but at least we need to say this, we can have an analysis of the human predicament or problem that through philosophy, there is the, that is the articulation, better than any place else, of what the human predicament is. To my mind, it's just an alternative discussion, an alternative dialogue to the broader discussion, and that's the way you'll see it encountered in the in the New Testament, that Paul is going to interweave. He's going to use philosophy in a lot of different ways, but ultimately, that would be my claim. You know, the passage in Colossians when he says, don't let yourselves be captive to philosophy. And of course, the, the question is, well, what does he mean by that word? Well, he means the false teaching that's there in Colossae. He could just as well have meant, you know, the Jews referred to the Essenes, the Pharisees. They referred to their own schools as schools of philosophy. It may be, have been that the, the false teachers were using that term. Paul may just be repeating their own notion of philosophy. So that, there's that instance. On the Areopagus, you know, actually, if you go through that speech, mainly he's quoting various philosophical thinkers. It's primarily an engagement with Stoicism, but then it is a departure from Stoicism. He is willing to find common ground, but then to critique. And the point he critiques is specifically over the work of Christ, that this man now is judging the world in the middle of history, and he's been raised from the dead. And so that's his point of departure. You know, you can find this throughout the New Testament, especially in Paul. You can find a parallels where it, it almost seems like even in the heart of the 
when he's describing the gospel, well, you could find very similar things in Plato. So it's not like there's a complete notion, oh, we, what we are doing is uh, a rejection, any more than we would say it's a rejection of Judaism or a rejection of any culture or understanding, but it is certainly an entry into it and a critique. And my point with it is that the critique is always going to fall. We can locate the nature of that critique in theological terms that there is life in the law, or in philosophical terms that there is life in human language per se, or that there is some final truth in human philosophical wisdom. And so in Corinthians, you know, that that wisdom of course, is going to count the cross as foolishness. I think I remember this from the last time, but you're kind of doing something similar to what you would say the Apostle Paul was doing there. And with like Zizek and these other um, philosophers and thinkers that you're pointing out truths. They may not be saying the right thing, but you're pointing out where they're going and then like bringing the foundation of theology of Christ into those so that we can see either how they're coming at this from the exact wrong angle or how we can see the rightness through it as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, and of course, what I did with the three parts is that we can actually historicize philosophy that most of what has happened, you know, this is Richard Rorty's book, uh, the, the mirror of nature, that most of philosophical history just imagines nature is a mirror that we look into and it reveals the truth or being or, you know, the essence. And so the history of philosophy is mainly that first stage. There is no questioning of the connection between language and reality, that there is just a presumed uh, understanding that we have access to the truth whatever that truth might be, you know, there'd be a variety of ways of describing it. And so in Paul's terms, there is no questioning of the law. There is a singular law, and it's shared by everybody. That's a way of doing theology, too. I mean, that's the predominant mode of uh, theology, that everybody just assumes that what Christianity is about is to reconcile us to the law, that we primarily relate to God through the law, and what the primary problem is, we've broken the law. Well, uh, that then accommodates a philosophical understanding. You know, this is the whole notion of available light that, oh, well, everybody has a basic shared understanding in and through a natural revelation so that we have, this is Douglas Campbell does a great job at laying this out. We have just enough information to implicate us that we're culpable and just enough inability that we're guilty. And so we're smart enough to be declared guilty and you know we're incapable then of doing what we know. That is the understanding in which the law plays the primary role. My point is, well, no, that's not actually Paul's view of the law, that Paul actually says there's two laws at work, the law of the body and the law of the mind. Uh, Matt texted me that, I don't know if he's reading my stuff, or, but he wrote and he said, well, wait a minute. Wouldn't that mean that you have the law of the mind and that's God's good law and there's the law of the body? Well, uh, no, not necessarily because that's the same thing, you know, the knowledge of good and evil. Does that mean, oh, there's the good stuff and then there's the evil stuff? No, that's not what Paul's saying. He's saying there's two laws at work and they're contradictory. 
I do what I don't want to do and what I want to do, I don't do, but also that they're in, inaccessible. We don't know what this thing is that has a grip on us. We can't name it. The law of sin and death is inaccessible to us in Paul's depiction because sin has deceived us. The human condition in Paul's description is much worse than we ever imagined. And so we, I think the way that the typical approach to this, oh, there is a kind of shared, universal shared understanding, the basis of which leads us to Christ. That would be an active, positive engagement. And what I'm saying and, uh, is that I think that's mistaken, that that really brings us through modernity. You know, Rene Descartes is kind of, I would put him as kind of the last figure in this, is I think, therefore I am. You can almost duplicate that in Augustine. Uh, it's a form of thought that's really right out of Anselm. There is this notion that thinking and being are interwoven. I think, therefore I am. And Kant says, well, actually the thinking thing is not accessed through the thought. In other words, those are two separate realms. And so he divides the world up into the noumen and the phenomenon. Then Hegel comes along and says, yeah, that's right. There's this division. But that division is not one that we get over. It's not some illusion. But the gap in human thought is inherent to that thought. That's the end of modernity in a sense. If we and and this I'm just doing a review of last week, and this is the point at which we enter into the second phase in Paul's depiction of the ego. Suddenly, philosophy is psychology. Hegel is just psychology. It's just you know we've turned to the interior. Kant is already sort of there, but Kant is still attempting to in some way, and he's still talking about the illusion of human thought as if we can correct it. Hegel says we don't need to correct it, that the antinomies of Kant are inherent to human thought. So that's the second phase. And then I, I put in a third phase. I would put Zizek, Lacan, uh, psychoanalysis as kind of the philosophy of the real. These guys are doing philosophy at a level, at, at a place. And so that, I'm saying all this, Trenton, what you said is true, but the engagement is always a different engagement. The philosophical engagement depending on where we're at, is going to be a very different understanding of truth and the nature of that truth. We haven't gotten to Romans 8. We're still doing Romans 7. We haven't said how Romans 8 would inter intersect with this, but I think part of it is that it's this holistic uh, depiction. Oh, go to Wittgenstein a little bit. Wittgenstein is the cure. I mean, he's the therapy. Here's the therapy that we need. Uh, at least in part. But before we go to that, so step one, how would you characterize the philosophical understanding of the soul and death? And so you would characterize the philosophical understanding of the soul and death by, you know, the Platonic idea like death releasing the soul from this thing that's inhibiting it from being uh, as good as it could be or the greatest that it could be. And um, so basically death is salvation in that way. And then how the Bible would say, well, no, the soul is your life and it's a holistic thing. It's not a dualistic thing. It's a, it's an embodied real world, tangible thing. That's it. So what's going to happen? We're, we're always describing the same thing. 
And that is, you know, that Plato needs the soul for the same reason that Descartes needs the soul. Their philosophical system is dependent upon a kind of innate immortality, that you arrive at, at the truth through your own thought because you have immortality, the Greek understanding that you're a little piece of God. I actually had a professor in Bible college at he said, yeah, we're all a little piece of God. He just, you know, just took it right there. Most people wouldn't state it that crudely, but in some way, Christian belief in the innate immortality of the soul functions in the same way, that it actually is a, a reification of human knowing, human thought. And death then can play into this in many ways. You know, by the time we get to Heidegger, there is the idea that death in some way is absolute or death is the doorway or death is, uh, you know, in Hegel, death is the center point to obtaining the truth, that you tarry with the negative, that it's in and through the negative that uh, all things arise. And so there's the reification that death becomes an instrument. And of course, what's happening in Lacan and Freud they're saying that this is the human sickness, this is the disease, is that we are taking death up into ourselves as if it's life. Well, that's Paul, and they, the Lacan, and they're both very aware, you know, Zizek just calls himself a Pauline materialist. They're always very aware they're doing the New Testament, though they're atheists. But this side of Paul, they very much, they would say that, that psychoanalysis is simply working in Romans 7 in, in an understanding of Paul. And I think that's right. And so what's happening in psychoanalysis is over and against this previous philosophical understanding. That's why I would classify it as the third phase, that we've actually, you know, I think named the human disease, the human sickness. And that is this orientation to death that is definitive of sin, that psychoanalysis in the Bible, I think, share to a large extent the prognosis of the disease. Now, the cure, of course, is in Zizek and Lacan, there's no real overcoming of the real or of the death drive. There is simply the manipulation of it. The proposal that we'll eventually get to in my book is that I think that Paul in places like Galatians says, it's no longer I that live, that I have been crucified. That is that there is an actual dissolution of this dynamic that Lacan and Zizek are presuming is the very definition of human subjectivity. And what I say is, no, there's an alternative subject. Yeah, Nietzsche's criticizing a Platonic Christianity, which is, of course, what we've been doing for a while in this group. So for him, it was like the, you know, aha, I got you. <laughs> Christianity is ruined. And for us, it was like, no. You're exactly right. That's what we need to get rid of. Once you get rid of that part, then uh, in this case, you know, we're talking about apocalyptic theology, then that is precisely the answer that we're looking for. It's not that there's a dead God, this absent God. The, there's actually this God who cares for uh, creation, who's, who's wanting to restore it, who's, who's wanting to reclaim it. How does he do that? Well, that's when we start talking about the death acceptance over against the death denial. And so as Christians, the same thing goes. We're, as followers of Christ, we need to embrace death instead of 
uh, rejecting it. We, we need to take up our crosses and, and be crucified. And so it is, as Paul says, no longer I who lives, it is Christ. The ego is gone. What we're doing is describing, you know, throughout the class, why did Jesus die? What, what's happening? That, you know, we've got all these theories of the atonement. The point is, well, it's there, it's on the surface that Christ is defeating death because our orientation to death is definitive of human subjectivity. That's all that Lacan and Zizek, that's what they're saying. And again, the problem is that we miss Paul because of uh, Augustine, the mistranslation of Romans 5, but then the whole theology built upon that mistranslation. Sin is defined as an orientation to death. And so Christ defeats that. He overcomes that orientation. And philosophy, I don't want to create a ghetto here of understanding, but a good deal of philosophy, a good deal of human thought, follows the nature of this human subject in reifying death, in making a fetish of language, that language, the law saves you. Well, philosophy saves you. Language saves you. It's all the same thing. It's all the symbolic order. Okay, that's step one. If you are happy with step one, I'll go to step two. I just wanted to, to turn a bit to Wittgenstein. Uh, to me, Wittgenstein is not very complicated, that he's doing a very simple thing, but it's so complicated because this is something that people had not done before. And rather than viewing philosophy as metaphysical explanation or theory building, Wittgenstein, is, he's going to view it as description and as therapy for philosophical confusion. And so he's going to think through philosophical problems and a kind of meaningless metaphysical language. I always like Richard Rorty's description of Wittgenstein, that philosophy is the attempt to climb above the chatter, to use language as a kind of ladder to escape language. And what Wittgenstein is saying is that language is embodied, that language is an extension of what it means to be embodied. Alan, you asked me earlier, what book did I used to use? I used to use Brian and Graffia. It's his PhD dissertation. And he goes through Nietzsche, Heidegger, and Derrida. What he's saying about each of them is their project is, at its heart, is a biblical project in which they misconstrue Christianity as the thing that they're critiquing, when in, in reality, the basis of their critique is precisely that of a Christian understanding. So obviously Nietzsche with Plato, well, he just equates Platonism and Christianity. And so, but we can see his naming of the idols, his notion of language. Derrida, the idea of the letter kills the life, you know, Derrida is going to give us a deconstruction. But the point is, well, actually, the New Testament is already doing that same sort of deconstruction. Heidegger is more fully, Heidegger just picks up biblical terms all over, and of course is making a kind of secular enterprise out of it. I, I like in Graffia's book, but for some reason people indicated it was not easy or accessible. And so, I and also the, the book itself was not readily available, so I didn't use it, but I think that that understanding of postmodernity is kind of there in many places. Then the point with Wittgenstein, and 
Fergus Kerr writes a little book, Theology After Wittgenstein, that is very helpful. It's an old book, but it's a very helpful, I think, intro. And of course, what Fergus Kerr is doing, there is this understanding of a kind of innate immortality, that a kind of platonic understanding of the human subject, and that's the mode. And in that mode, there is a dualism, and language is depicted as kind of a disembodied, kind of a soulish activity, or as in Cartesian thought, it's of the mind and not of the body. Or even there in Anselm of Canterbury, there's already this division. Wittgenstein's remarks on language and knowledge, he's just persistently treating the relation of mind and body. He's saying these things are not separate. He rejects any philosophy that attempts to separate the thinking subject from his own body or from the rest of the world. That is, what it means to be a subject means to be embodied, and what it means to be embodied is you're part of a world. And here, Wittgenstein is fighting the majority tradition in that it is all bound up in, you know, theory, practice, inner, outer, the two-substance theory of reality, you know, against Descartes in particular. For Wittgenstein, the ground of a person's knowledge is not interior or experiential, but it's just the opposite. That is, in this, we come upon children's acquisition of language. How do you learn to talk? So Wittgenstein starts his project critiquing Augustine's notion that he learned to talk as a child because he already knew how to talk, but then he had to translate what his parents were saying into his own private language. But his point is just the opposite of Descartes' emphasis on the thinking thing as if it is a kind of little green man. I always use the men, is it men in black or the the little green man, you know, they come in and they shoot the old Jewish jewelers and their heads pop open and there's these little green men that are running the machine. That's sort of the way that Descartes thought of human beings, the ghost in the machine. The body is just mechanical. The, The body is unnecessary for thought. That's the conclusion to modernity. And so Wittgenstein, in a strange way, in an analytic philosophical tradition, you know, he's, even though he's from Austria, nonetheless, he's working in the same philosophical tradition, primarily loaded, located in Great Britain. On the continent, we would have the postmodern thought of Foucault, Derrida, Lacan, primarily a French uh, postmodernism. Heidegger's kind of off by himself. But then I I think that in a very real way that Wittgenstein is part of the same project. It's just that he's writing in a very different idiom. But he wants to overcome the outside-inside split in language. For Wittgenstein, knowledge does not begin with consciousness. It really doesn't begin with anything. But knowledge is rooted in a person's form of life. And a shared form of life is the context in which we know what we know. He uses game theory. Playing chess, you can't make a touchdown. The check makes sense in chess, but it doesn't make sense in checkers. That is, the rules of the game is the deep grammar. And here, you know, even linguistic theory, thinking of Noam Chomsky, it sounds very similar, that it makes sense because of the game that we're playing or the form of life in which we're participating. 
And so there's no sense of an ego separated from the world. That isolation that is a kind of negative thing in the New Testament, that becomes the foundation of a form of thought, that as the alienated I, the ego, the kind of dualism, in which we literally, I mean, I, the Genesis story, it's interesting to me that Hegel is going to read Genesis 3, and he's going to say, boy, sure, good thing we had to fall. Of course, he doesn't literally believe it, but he believes that what we are reading in that story is the beginning of human cognition. The knowledge of good and evil is just that dialectic is the capacity to think. That is, there's always the, that you need the dialectic, you need some form of dualism to think. Interestingly, Derrida also does a reading of Genesis 3. And Derrida's, of course, is a deconstruction of that dialectic. And so, you know, in the Genesis story is that you'll be like gods. And that's sort of Wittgenstein's point is that, well, somebody like Descartes or there is this notion that you could review the world from a, as if you're not part of it, that you are like a God who knows what, in fact, we cannot know. He sees the world, the whole of which, as if we could see an infinite series through consciousness. It is a critique of that, that dualism. So I guess just to kind of pair it back to make sure I'm tracking and maybe I'm going to oversimplify this or I'll be completely wrong. You can tell me. So what you're saying with Wittgenstein is that what he is pointing out is how some of these other philosophies are using language, which is grounded in our reality to try to explain something that is not grounded in our reality. Yeah. They're, they're trying to use language in a kind of disembodied, uh, even outside of the context of the world. Descartes actually uses the illustration. He says, you know, my body's just a machine. And so I could just take a cow's eye or some dead animal's eye and I could stick it in my eye socket. The, the parts of the machine don't really matter so much because what does the seeing is not the eye, but it's the person behind the me mechanism. And so I use my eyes, you know, I'm back here maybe next to the pineal gland or where uh, the soul resided. But the subject then is a, a kind of whole subject, a disembodied subject. There's a story of a group of Parisians. They were lock, walking along the riverbank in Paris, and uh, they had just started reading a Descartes, and a dog trotted up, and one of them kicked the dog in the stomach, and his friends were shocked. And he said, oh, it's okay. It's just a mechanism that we're seeing. And so there is this idea of a complete dualism. First of all, Descartes, his personal story is kind of interesting. This is Derrida's point with Descartes, is that he feared death his whole life. And he thought that science would in some way solve the problem of death. And of course, what he's actually doing in his philosophical understanding, he's positing the I, the subject that is disembodied, is immortal. Well, it was just related to the, the anecdote about the replacing one's eye with the cow's eye uh, it reminded me so recently I've become very fascinated with uh, the literate the very vast literature on near-death experiences something that's really fascinating is how philosophers and theologians really haven't come to terms with the findings that are come out of these very like I said very widely reported and recorded uh, stories of people experience what they experience when they're when they lose consciousness and one of the things that reminded me of like this idea of seeing but without eyes 
is that people who are born blind or they're blind from birth and have never known what it's like to see the world, when they have near-death experiences, they're actually able to see uh, the hospital, for instance, the hospital room that they're in. I mean, uh, the the way that they reported, of course, will be different because they don't have the conceptual grammar for how to understand the world in the same way that people who have eyesight and learn language with their eyesight. But I think that's just a really interesting phenomenon of like a type of seeing that doesn't require eyesight is revealed through these uh, near-death experiences. I guess that my, my initial thought is that all of our senses are tied into language. That is, the way in which we see is partly informed by our linguistic experience. Helen Keller is a great example of this because she describes a world in which she has sensations that she can't name the object until she learns to talk, you know, with the the sign language. And then when she learns the sign, there's the sense that she has access to the thing itself. In the movie, it's the, you know, she's able to spell the word water, but actually that, that a series of things happen suddenly the world is opened up to her. There is the sense that she's given her sight through language, even though she would always be blind. And I'm wondering if that isn't true of all of us, that even those of us, you know, that we see, yeah, but what we see, even our seeing is tied into our being able to name things. The theological trajectory, so Wittgenstein, uh, he would have influenced McIntyre and Stanley Harwas and the whole post-liberal project, is that how it goes? Yeah, yeah. Stanley Harwas, publicly, I haven't heard him talk about, but in writing and other places, uh, attributes his own theological development largely to Wittgenstein. And so I think the post-liberals at Yale, a lot of them are, that they're working with Wittgenstein. Wittgenstein himself, his personal journey is very interesting. And I first encountered this in James McClendon. And McClendon, you know, McClendon's whole project, I don't know if you've read his trilogy, but, you know, he try, he starts the project in ethics, and mm-hmm. he's saying, well, we want to do the story of the narrative is just as important. By the time he gets to witness, I think it is, that he tells the story. And mm-hmm. so his point is that you can kind of read the biography of Wittgenstein and the philosophical development When McClendon was writing that, as I understand this, they had not yet discovered his diaries, that there were a a large cache of diaries, are discovered in that he describes his struggle with the resurrection of Christ, Hmm. and that he actually comes to believe in the resurrection. McClendon didn't know that. And most mm-hmm. people, most people dealing with fitness. I happened to run into the Japanese translator of those diaries. Uh-huh. We taught at the same university and he started, he put me onto the diaries. So that there is so much revealed about Wittgenstein's spirituality. Uh-huh. So he is very much on a spiritual quest. But of course, that doesn't show itself necessarily in the philosophy. He never joins a church. He never acknowledges that publicly. And apparently, even to his friends privately, it's not clear, you know, when he was up in his cabin, they said, what were you doing up there? And he said, I was praying. And they were shocked. They didn't even know that he believed in prayer. And so in the diaries, this all comes out, that at least he's struggling, uh, you know, how far he, he obviously is not any kind of uh, orthodox Christian, 
that's what he sees in his notion of being a follower of Christ like Tolstoy. So he's reading Tolstoy's Life of Christ, and that was always his model. But of course, he had no problem with Tolstoy's model because Tolstoy rejected miracles. But Wittgenstein actually, I think, goes beyond that. He begins, Wittgenstein always had a strong belief in the necessity of judgment. He always struggled. He couldn't, he just couldn't believe the miracles and especially the resurrection. But one day he accepts that, and that's there in the diaries. Uh, I think that that's a part of, in other words, when we, the, the reason that is important, because what we're describing as Christians, the way that we depict salvation is not disembodiment, but it's the fu- a fulfilled embodiment. It's resurrection, that it's not a departure, but it is a resurrected body. It's a reconstituted cosmos. The, the creation is made anew or reconstituted. Paul, could you just maybe take a minute or two and just summarize what you what you did today in the class? Well, part of it, I gave a brief synopsis of our first week. We're using a lot of arcane language, philosophical or psychoanalytic language. But I think that the key to it is to understand we're always, we're, we're working with a very simple concept. And that is that language is reified. It's, made, it's given an essence in the same way that the law is reified. And so what happened in the New Testament, you're going to see Paul treating the law in the same way that he treats philosophy. In fact, he can name both things simultaneously. He'll talk about Judaism and the the false teachers that are partly doing the law. He'll, He'll talk about this philosophy that can take you captive. I just summed up that in the first week, we said that there are three basic orientations to language. That have to do with the three parts of the human subject in the law, the law of the mind, the law of the body or the ego, and the death, the body of death. And those then describe not just three parts of the subject, but a history of philosophy. That philosophy is going to fall into one of those categories, all of which are an orientation to language uh, and a kind of reification of the law or reification of language. That gives us the history of thought in the nature is the mirror that Richard Rorty's book, the history of thought is, oh, you just look in the mirror of nature and you get the truth. And then it falls apart with Kant, Hegel, and the postmodern turn. And then I just put Freud, Lacan, and Zizek in the third phase, they're the philosophers of the real. That's the way they would describe, you know, Zizek would describe himself. We're no longer doing philosophy of ontotheology, the superego, the symbolic. We're no longer doing philosophy of the ego, of the I, a sub- subjectivity. But we're doing, we're recognizing that this human subjectivity, I, everybody understood I'm describing the structure of a lie. A lie, there's the medium of the lie, language, the symbolic. There's the object of the lie. The prime object is the I, the ego. And then there's the negation. Language can negate. And what is negated in the lie is the death drive, is the real. And they're dealing in this negation. I never know whether to include Hegel in this or not. But Hegel seems to have this positive element to him and what he talks about, noose or spirit. Zizek says, ah, he doesn't believe any of that. But I, I, I don't know. 
But certainly Zizek and Lacan, in that sense, are true nihilists. They might resent that characterization, but truly the evil and death and jouissance is originary with them and inescapable. That is a quick summation. And then I turned to Wittgenstein and said, we, we need therapy. You know, obviously the therapy that we're getting in the New Testament, and I think Wittgenstein is an approach to an alternative reading in which we're no longer talking about a reified language separated out from the body, but we're talking about an, uh, that embodiment and language are not separate. Thomas brought up the idea of near-death experiences in which people seem to have senses even when they did, you know, they're blind. But my point would be, yeah, but all of our, our senses are informed by language and vice versa, that our language is dependent, interdependent upon those senses. What was the thing you said? I did, I did footnote you today, Matt. You said in conjunction with the two eyes, the law of the mind. But seven, whenever Paul says, I was asking you like, well, is there a good, you know, ego or there's two eyes clearly, but he says, you know, I, I delight in the law of God, you know? And he says, I, you know, they've got a couple of times there in Romans seven, it's like, well, is there a part of the eye that hasn't been completely sort of marred or something like this by the situation that you're describing? That's sort of like your conversation that with the knowledge of good and evil. And he said, well, there is the good. And I think Paul is still, you know, actually, I think Paul is doing Genesis 3. I think he's giving us a commentary on Genesis 3. By saying that, I'm not saying that the good's not, that there isn't an element of goodness in the knowledge of good and evil or that there's not an element of a legitimate law in the law of the mind. The problem is that it's paired up in a dialectic, that you know the one through the other, and the two things are informing one another. The co I, uh, in doing the, the book or the dissertation, I went, went through various commentators, and they were kind of split on this, that some would say, yeah, that the law of the mind is not necessarily the law given at Sinai and would read it in this way, but not, not everybody holds that. So what you're saying, there may be some legitimacy to it. I mean, the, the th my question was, is he's talking about the, like the inmost man. He says something like, you know, I delight in the law of God in my inmost self. So, you know, the ego, I do, you know, he's talking about delight, you know, so there's the ego, there's the delight, there's the law, there's, it's a heavy sentence there in verse 22, whatever the inmost self might be. And, uh, that was just my question that of course though he sees this you know this sort of war in his members so making me the captive and so it's like okay well is the me that's being captive taken captive there you know the good yeah right it's like our guess like that that that, that image that's made in, in part of the self that's made in the image of god this is sort of the question of human conscience 722 matt okay is our conscience access to the law is that a legitimate access to the law? Or is, in fact, can we let, as Jiminy Cricket said, can we let our conscience be our guide? Is Jiminy Cricket a good Pauline theologian? Or, in fact, is Freud correct that human morality is immorality? The example that Marx uses, you know, who's worse, the bank robber or the guy who founds the bank? Or we, if you don't like that critique, you know, who's worse, that in a evil system, there is a propagation of evil that is much more profound. So that morality as a deceived goodness is the heart of evil. 
I believe, in Paul's depiction. And that's his engagement. That's why he's saying there is no difference between the Jews and the Gentiles, between those who've been given the law, because that what we do with the law is always perverted. That is, that our orientation to the law is to find life in the law or to imagine that the law is an end in itself. I presume that even there where he's describing these two laws and that they intersect one another, that we don't necessarily have a hold of the law that is unmixed with sin. In other words, he's describing this mixture, and you can't get it unmixed. I think that's Paul's argument, that the orientation to the law that is definitive of sin, in fact, does not give us access to the proper function of the law. And so you can't let your conscience be your guide. In fact, your conscience is your worst enemy. You would get at this a little bit, strangely enough, you know, in the depiction of Paul's biography, that Paul, when he was the chief of sinners, was in no way troubled by his conscience. This is his point in Philippians. I was righteous in regard to the law. I was, in regards to being a Hebrew, You know, he goes through and brags. Paul wasn't troubled by his conscience. So what we're reading in Romans 7 is not Paul's psychology, but it is, uh, as as a non-Christian, but it's his reflection on that understanding after he's a Christian. Even from the verses there, I could understand there would be a basis for disagreement. And so commentators do disagree on that. I'm, I'm certainly with you whenever it comes to our apprehending, you know, God or in the law and language and all that stuff that you you were talking about today that because of sin we have a misorientation to all those different things and so I like the point you made about the sort of the admixture of you know do we have a we have access to that whatever that I is who delights in the law of God and the inmost self I, I don't know and I just want to think about it I guess yes yeah, so I was just wondering I could be way off about the yeah, reification of language how often Christian discipleship in conservative evangelicalism and other parts of the church fails to um, create disciples or robust, mature disciples. Is there any connect? Would there be a, a connection between those two things? Or? Say it again, between the reification of the law? Of, of language. We, we don't operate with an understanding of, the, of embodied language often, at least in my experience of church. Yeah, I think that this gets at a lot of misunderstood spirituality, a misunderstood mysticism. Uh, Bad mysticism is a kind of notion of putting aside the body. Our focus on propositions, on doctrine, as opposed to practice. What we're describing then is an alternative understanding that practice and belief are interconnected, which sounds funny because we're not used to talking that way. We think you can believe stuff that you don't actually practice. Yes, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Which is sort of like saying you can believe stuff you don't actually believe. The story I always tell is he has the horseshoe up on his wall and somebody comes and says, oh, professor, I'm surprised that a great scientific mind like yourself would have a lucky horseshoe. He said, oh, no. He said, I don't believe in that. But I understand that it works even if you don't believe in it. We often work our belief, well, if I believe it strong enough, that's the main thing, as if my belief is disconnected from my practice. Yeah. You know, you can go either way with that. 
And of course, that's just not Christianity, but that for most people, what you believe is definitive of Christianity. Accept Jesus into your heart, believe these doctrines, and you'll go to heaven. Yeah. And it leaves out practice entirely. Yeah. And of course, well, the main th thing for most people's Christianity is they want to miss hell and go to heaven. And it has very little to do with practice. And so, yeah, I think it's all caught up in evangelical. I don't, I don't mean to pick on that because it's, it's woven throughout. You know, it's there in, I think, every phase of Christian thought. And this is partly what Hauerwas and a lot of people have come back to is realizing the way you believe stuff is you do it. You know, that's really the teaching of the New Testament, that there is no controversy between James and Paul. The faith that requires practice, the charity, you know, caring for widows and orphans. For Paul, the practice that is not required has nothing to do with what James is talking about. Paul is talking about the ethnic guides of the law, circumcision, the food laws, and the Sabbath. He's saying those markers, those works of the law, have nothing to do with Christian faith. He's not in any way saying, as Christians, what we do yeah. doesn't, yeah. you know. So, there, there, yeah, there's that whole confusion. Very much tied into this discussion. Yeah, I think okay. that's right. So that's where the new perspective, I, I found the new perspective in, uh, into the law and Jewish, Jewishness very helpful, right? I think it is. Now, whether it's exhaustively helpful, you know, it's partially helpful, yeah. This is sort of Douglas Campbell's critique. He says, well, the yeah. new perspective really, in as much as the people doing new perspective are still tied up into a kind of contractual theology, uh, including N.T. Wright, they're falling back into the same fallacy. But I still think that the new perspective is a step forward in, in identifying, well, nobody ever believed in works righteousness. But they did believe in ethnic right, you know, being ethnically part of the group, that that is salvific. Thank you. It's good to see everybody. Not to worry. Thank you, Paul. All right. Nice meeting you, everyone. Alan, okay. Matt. All right. Good Thank night. You. Good night. Bye, guys. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.